From SITREP on BFBS, I'm Kate Chabot. Getting out the tank, wait, wait. It's 30 years since the Berlin Wall came down. They've stopped, they have seen us. This is the story of the British soldiers who crossed the border into East Germany to spy on Soviet military activities. Hello, pal. And the Soviets knew they were there. Okay, start moving forward. We were in the backyard, and that, yeah. there will probably never be a time in history when we will have this kind of an opportunity again. Yeah. We were spying, and um, they knew it, and we knew they knew it. He was warned, but he uh, sort of ignored the warning, and he was shot. A lot of people were, you know, rammed, they were pushed off the road, they were shot at. It was clearly dangerous. This is the story of the British Cold War spies, known as Bricksmiths. BFBS reporter Rosie Layden is with me. Rosie, this sounds fascinating. Tell me how it began. At the end of the Second World War, the cooperation that had seen the Allies defeat Nazi Germany came to an end. Germany was carved up into four different occupation zones. In the east, roughly a third of the country was controlled by Soviet Russia, and the remaining two-thirds in the west came under American, British and French control. The German capital, Berlin, was also split into east and west, a border which became literally set in stone in 1961, when the communist-controlled east erected the Berlin Wall. But an interesting part of that deal was the creation of military missions. The British one was called Bricksmiths, or to give it its full name, the British Commander-in-Chief's Mission to the Soviet Forces. So what was Bricksmiths for? It was set up as a liaison mission to work with the other wartime allies, the French, the Russians, the Americans. But in reality, it put them in a perfect position to spy on Soviet military activity. They were allowed to spy then? Kind of. Under liaison rules, 31 men in the unit had permission to travel into what was now enemy territory. And even though they had to wear uniform and drive marked cars, they were able to bend the rules beyond breaking point to gather vital intelligence on exactly what the Soviets were up to. So tell me about this man called Dave Butler. How did you meet him and who is he exactly? Well, in the late 80s, Dave served in Bricksmiths. He was a tour NCO and he worked with a tour officer and a driver as part of a close-knit three-man team. And I met him when I went to the unveiling ceremony for a memorial plaque to Bricksmiths. And um, 30 years after the wall came down, Dave came back with me to the former East Germany. And where did you go exactly? Well, Dave drove me to the former Soviet Liberosa tank range, where in the 1980s, he and his team would watch and wait while the Soviet troops were put through their paces. This is where the tank would have driven into. Bearing in mind, you have to remember here, is that none of these trees were here. 33 years ago, this was a tank range. So... As soon as the tanks had left, Dave and his team would drive onto the range and start scavenging for the things the troops had left behind. If a, if a tank round or something like that didn't work, they would uh, just throw it over the top. This is where we got hold of their fin stabilised, um, discarding sabo round, uh, complete ones that, you know, just because it, it didn't quite go in the breach, it was a little bent, they threw it over the side. And, and, I'm, and I'm sure that our... Uh, our intelligence agencies made a lot of intelligence out of that. So they were spy magpies then? Yes, and that's a really good way of putting it. And what I found when we went back there, I couldn't stop Dave. He was desperate to get out there and find more stuff. So this looks like a piece of uh, Russian discarded munition. Uh, I'm just trying to see. I think that's a Russian, well, I would call a, a P, but we were a Russian R, and then there's a hyphen, three dashes, followed by... I guess that's a three. 
okay, so I think, I think this is RPG. In the 1980s, it was all about the T-80 tank. It was at the heart of the Soviet war machine. Top of NATO's target acquisition list was something called an explosive reactive armour box or an ERA box. And this is a clever piece of armour that tripled the resistance of the brand new T-80. So Dave and his fellow Brixmas operatives were so desperate to get their hands on one of these, they hatched a dangerous and daring plan to get one as the tanks were loaded onto trains. And the idea was that the tanks would load on a ramp very similar to the one behind us here uh, onto the railway flats and we would uh, board the train as it pulled out, get onto it, find a tank and, and take the box off. The challenge that we had of course was the boxes were all held on by nuts and we didn't know what size nut it actually was. We took some close-up photography of it and then did some like telemetry on it uh, but we still couldn't be sure so we found uh, a spanner, this spanner actually, which, which has got four different sizes on. So we figured that, that one of these would fit. That was the plan. But in fact, luckily for Dave, they, they didn't have to jump on and off moving trains because on a routine rain scavenge, Dave struck gold. And I was just walking into a revetment uh, similar to this one. And, and what caught my eye was just a little bit of green sticking out of the out of the uh, sand like this and uh, and so I thought oh, that looks odd and all I did was I bent down like this reached in picked it up and uh, and pulled out pulled out what well, I knew instantly was an ERA box and uh, and and suddenly around me was all this music and stuff like that a bit like you know if you'd won the lottery you know, it's that one of those moments in time when you just know you've got something. And analysis of that ERA box revealed that NATO anti-tank weaponry wasn't strong enough to penetrate that Soviet armour at the time. And that sent weapons designers straight back to the drawing board. So, Rosie, that sounded like it was quite a breakthrough. But we've got to remember, of course, these were soldiers and they were working to tight briefs. Absolutely. So, um the way they did work, they couldn't exactly predict exactly what they were going to find, but they were very much given a, a list of top requirements from NATO and, and other intelligence agencies about what they wanted. And, and so that year, 1987, it was the ERA box, but other years there'd be something else that was up there and they would just be in hope of finding some of these and whatever else they happened across. But yes, they did have a brief as well. And the way they worked, as I said before, they, they would work in a three-man team. And one of the people who Dave worked with was retired Major General Peter Williams, both men spent time driving around East Germany in full view of their Soviet counterparts, or as they called them, narcs. Because this Hotel Mercure here was the inter-hotel, wasn't it? It was the yes. big, the big um, yeah. Yeah. prestige communist hotel. Yeah, we always used to say in, in Dresden, the Hotel Neva, yeah. and interesting enough, um, we were always put on the 13th floor, and we always seemed to get the same rooms. So we just concluded that, yeah. that the Stasi were well, we had them all wired and that. You we know. went on a, a town tour once in Wittenberg and it was the weekend of the East German guard dog training championship <laughs> or something. And it turned out that um, nobody had warned the Stasi that we were coming and there were no other rooms available and several lots of people were turfed out of their rooms so that the Stasi <laughs> could have the rooms on either side yeah. of ours. Yeah. And uh, it was all rather unsubtle. And when we used to go on the cultural tours, of course, I always used to make sure I put the kids where the narcs were and then take their picture and you could always tell the yeah. narcs because in the background they were the ones looking in their newspapers and they or got, yeah. appearing not to and they didn't want their photograph taken because eventually the photograph would make it to the bnd Correct. to the 
yeah. to the German yeah. security services, and then they could never be deployed in the West as Precisely, a yeah. sleeper agent or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I've got a whole series of photographs that were sent to me by a, um, a chap who wrote a book about the mission here, Mark Prufer, and he met a mysterious Herr Bloom. And Herr Bloom, when he said, um, uh, you know, I was helped by Peter Williams to write this book, gave me lots of pictures and things, he said, ah, Captain Williams. And he went next door in his flat and came back with a, um, a Stasi photographic surveillance file <laughs> of um, us in an Opal Senator at Barleben, so there's Jeff Fairburn and wow. me and um, Phil Claridge, and we arrived, and, and it's got a whole sort of uh, thing. If you wanted to be immortalised as very <laughs> professional, this is not the this is not the series of photographs because yeah, we got yeah. very bored. It was a very hot day, and at one stage I sat on the roof of the car with a beanie hat on, reading a book, <laughs> and Jeff Fairburn took his shirt off to get a suntan. Yeah. And then a train came along, and the, the Stasi file even has the train, which was full of uh, East German artillery and things like this. But we were unaware that they were watching us while we were watching, <laughs> watching them, as yeah. it were. Um, like it, that spy versus spy, yeah. isn't it? You know. <laughs> it really does sound like the stuff out of films, Rosie. What about those Soviet spies watching them? Well, yeah, we found one. So here I am with a man from the Soviet External Relations Branch <laughs> and a man from Bricksmiths <laughs> in the same vehicle together going around Potsdam. While Dave was running missions into communist East Germany, he was being watched by Sergei Savchenko, who worked for Serb, and that was the Soviet agency responsible for keeping tabs on Bricksmiths. How did you find him? It was really difficult because I really wanted somebody to, to tell the story from the Russian point of view. But... Uh, making contact with somebody in that position was difficult. And Dave knew of somebody, Sergei, in fact, um, who he'd met at a previous uh, reunion event. And we timed our trip to coincide with a special reunion conference out in Germany. I did hear that he was definitely going to be at this conference, but of course I had no idea without having spoken to him whether he'd speak to us and go on the record. Um, so I bumped into him on the stairs and, and practically begged him to talk to us and in fact he was very willing and not only did he speak to us he came down with us to the famous Glienicke Bridge which is the original Bridge of Spies where Cold War prisoners were once exchanged between East and West. Did Bricksmiths really give you a major headache when we oh, were operating? Sense. Well I wouldn't say I would only say that the least the least uh, problems that we had were from the French. The <laughs> Right, okay. They're, they were the quietest. Oh, really? You know, I, I brought out the explosive reactive armour block box that, mm -hmm. that we recovered from a T-80. Um, did, I mean, it, was that... I don't know if that's a surprise now, but, I mean, at the time, did you get any intelligence to suggest that that had actually happened? Did you know, and did you know how important it was to the West at that time? Well, of course I could understand how important it was for the West, but the thing is that... They did not always report to us such incidents. Right. It only when you got when they got your fingers in the tail. In this case, yes. Yeah. yeah. But otherwise, it didn't work this way. Oh, okay. I mean, that's that's really interesting because you know we always like to think that that we were able to to, to remove things without. I tell you more. When you removed it from the tank, uh, it is not a fact that they reported it. And, and is that just because, because that's the punishment, Soviet the punishment for losing that would be very strict on them too. So they probably pretended that it never disappeared. There was no incentive. Yeah. In, because the punishment really could be quite harsh. Yes, quite. And they didn't want to take it. Yeah. 
Um, I mean, was there anything else that you were aware of that, that we were well, doing? Well, some of the, uh, we have uh, hundreds of episodes. Yeah. Some of them are absolutely anecdotal. Yeah. Like, uh, there was an American vehicle that stopped for a while. The doors were open and the soldiers could see that the American vehicle was about 200 meters from them. Actually, one of the soldiers said, Comrade Lieutenant, why don't you fire at these guys? He says, I don't have any ammo. He says, well, I have some, I have some. And he gave him a handful of cartridges. He loaded his gun and he had to shoot. And he did shoot at a distance of 200 meters and he hit it five times. The American he, vehicle? Yes, he, he hit the vehicle five times. Wow. When I was investigating that, you know what he said to me? Yes, there was a vehicle, and I fired several times in the direction of that vehicle without taking aim. <laughs> and which, which version of the story did you believe? Well, I believe that five bullets were landed in the, in the, in vehicle. the vehicle, and at 200 meters, <laughs> shooting in the direction of that <laughs> vehicle. Hit and what, me, did so the, what did the American general... Uh, there was a protest. I bet, yeah, there was a protest, yeah. of course. Yeah. And we had to actually acknowledge that it was uh, unlawful. Yeah. And uh, we pledged to take measures that it should never happen again. Yeah. That's what we did. Well, Rosie, this worker is clearly dangerous. Was anybody killed doing it? Two men lost their lives while working for the foreign missions. French officer Philippe Mariotti was rammed off the road by a Stasi vehicle in the city of Halle. And in 1985, US Major Arthur Nick Nicholson was shot by a Soviet sentry. I spoke to a former member of the US mission about this. Essentially, Nick went to, you know, a place that was a routine place to go and he was in the wrong place at the wrong time. He, um, you know, went to... Um, a training area that was pretty routine. I mean, it was something that people did every single day, as the Russians did the same, Soviets. Um, and the guard was nervous, a kid, and, you know, didn't know what the heck he was doing, and that's the result. Stephen Hoyt worked closely with Major Nicholson before he was killed. It's even worse when you know the person personally, know their family, know their daughter, you know their dog. And Peter Williams remembers it well. When Nicholson was killed in March 1985, it was much too serious an incident to be brushed under the carpet. And in fact, it was the first crisis that Mr. Gorbachev had to face. He'd become the head of the Soviet Union only a week or so before, and suddenly on his plate was uh, a Soviet soldier having killed an American officer. At the time, the Soviet Union denounced Major Nicholson for trespassing and ignoring warnings. But now, Sergei Savchenko has a different story about the Soviet soldier who shot him. The soldier himself was not adequately or duly instructed as to how to behave in that situation. And he was kind of trigger happy on the one hand, and he actually didn't know what to do. He was uh, excited, he was frightened, and uh, I don't know, he acted out of because responsibility for guarding military assets went directly to the top, there was also an incentive for the Soviet Union to make it look like Major Nicholson had been at fault. There was an actual transgressor who ignored all the signs, he ignored the barbed wire, who, I don't know, penetrated, acted aggressively, and he was, he was warned, but he uh, sort of ignored the warning, and he was shot, and, and all this kind of stuff, you know, which was certainly not true. 
So a bit of a cover up. It was kind of yeah, because they 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 wanted to they had to cover up the 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 chief of staff. So Rosie, what about the British operatives? You'd think they'd be armed as well. Yes, you would think so, but no. Uh, despite the dangers, none of the mission members were armed. No Brixmas operatives carried weapons when they went out on tour. It's something I asked Dave about. We never took out anything written down about the targets that we had to get because we're always very conscious that any moment the vehicle might be rammed, we might be broken into, and so everything in the vehicle would be turned out by the Soviets and, and every bit of evidence that they could find to incriminate us, you know, uh, would be useful. So we never took anything out about the targets. The only things we marked on our maps, uh, our mappings, was, was a little Z, which was a Z platz where we used to sleep at night. And the other one was a little ice cream cone um, that we put over the map, which was where the, the ice cream parlours were. Because again, you know, it's hot out, out on tour and, and we often used to like to stop for an ice cream. We only found out when a vehicle got turned over and the, Russia, and the Soviets took, took the maps out and, and they accused us uh, of either plotting nuclear detonations of ours on them or where we thought their nuclear storage sites were. Because of the little conical shape of a cone and a little fluffy bit over the top, they thought these were little mini nuclear explosions, which, which I have to say Chief of Mission found extremely amusing, and, and so did we. I, I think it only encouraged us to increase the amount of ice cream stops we put on our maps. Bricksmith tours were on the road for days at a time and Dave reckons they spent more time under canvas than any other unit in the British Army and he showed me how they used to camp. So the rustling you can hear over him speaking is him putting up his little tent in the woods. It's his original Bricksmith tent which he's kept for 30 years in his shed. We do anti-surveillance or denarking as we used to call it beforehand because we wanted to make sure that we weren't disturbed at night when we were sleeping. You'd be doing at least 18 hour days, you know, watching railway lines and things. And actually for most of us, this was the boring bit. We went to bed thinking what we'd be missing, what we're missing while we were asleep. Go to great lengths to make sure that we, that we, weren't, uh, we weren't followed. You know, we'd, we'd go hundreds of kilometers if necessary. We'd always sleep fully clothed, take our boots off. And uh, in the winter, we had these hot bags that you break open and then have some on your hands and some on your feet, get into your kennel tent. And uh, that was it for the night. You'd be, uh, you know, snug as a bug in a rug. In we go. Boom, boom. So I get the impression that Dave loved his job. He loved his job. He still loves that job. And when we went out there, he went into kind of Brixmas mode and you <laughs> had to kind of keep tabs on him to stop him going off on one. Um, he told me about the signs that the Russians put up to try and stop Brixmas and other foreign missions poking around. And they said, passage of foreign military liaison missions prohibited. And that was in four languages, <laughs> in English, French, German, Russian. Um, but it didn't stop them. And obviously Dave nicked one, took it home with him. This sign normally lives in my shed at home on the back of the door. The Soviets put these signs around all of their training areas and installations. And of course, it was a double-edged weapon. The, uh, the Soviets thought these signs were there to keep us out. But for us, it just told us there was something worth looking at behind them. 
So, Rosie, was there anywhere they couldn't go? Yes. Uh, Despite this gung-ho attitude to security, there were actually quite a lot of areas which were off-limits. And certainly, breaking into Red Army headquarters would have been totally out of the question, even for Brixmas. But during our trip, Dave and I joined a coachload of veteran spies on a visit to the Russians' former HQ in Zoshin-Wunsdorf. This is the so-called secret village, once home to as many as 75,000 Soviet soldiers and their families. Today, the houses are out of bounds to the public, run down and semi-derelict. There's a giant statue of Lenin which still stands outside what was once the Russian cultural center. Despite the decay, there's still signs of the former HQ, the grand staircases, long corridors, high ceilings and high security. Clearly not allowed in this bit. And beyond the village, there's a hidden complex of bunkers. The underground Soviet operations centre was hidden beneath buildings which stood on the surface and were made to look like typical German houses to disguise their real purpose. <laughs> I'm guessing it's for confidential discussions and not interrogation. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it didn't have the ISO container like there. <laughs> And while they were looking in the communications bunker, they came across an exciting document. It's an original Soviet telegram log, which was once top secret and now on open display. And this was thrilling for Mike Ennis, a former major general in the US Marines who served in the US foreign liaison mission. I kind of get jittery because that's the kind of stuff that we really wanted to find. Yeah. And you, you'd be searching through the dumps, through all kinds of stuff to find this to sort find, of thing. This would be the golden nugget. That's right. Or if we went into a training area where they had been with a signals unit and we found this. Interestingly enough, the Soviet army did not issue toilet paper to their soldiers. And so frequently what would happen is that uh, the soldiers would rip out pages of a log and use it to wipe their butts. So we found out where they pooped in the woods and we would actually go through that with a stick and gloves trying to pick up the pieces and we took them back with us in plastic bags. And that was worth your while? Yes. Yes, it was. Did you find good stuff doing we that? Because it's a hell of a job. <laughs> we found good stuff doing it. Yes, we did. It was just part of the job, and we enjoyed it. Well, that was Mike Hennis, um, who served for three years with the USMLM. That's the American sister mission. Um, they had just 14 members compared to the 31 in Brixmas, but they operated in a similar clandestine way. If there was ever going to be a conventional attack, it was going to start in East Germany. And as a result, a lot of their best equipment and their newest equipment came in. So we were out there trying to find out. We we monitored rail lines. We were on the roads. We we looked around installations to find out what they had. The T-80 tank, for example, the uh, the ZSU or the 2S6, uh, uh, things like that. The SA-11. The book system. Yeah. You know, I was there from 86 to 89. Mm-hmm. And, and as was I, yeah. people regard that as like the heyday because that was when we saw the greatest amount of newest Soviet equipment being introduced into yeah. GSFG. Mm-hmm. And for us, of course, that gave us a tremendous uh, ability and capability to, um, to capture it either on film or on video or, or some of the other means we had. And then there were the serendipitous things like uh, uh, when the MiG-29 crashed, uh, and we watched the Soviets come out and, and haul away all of the pieces. And after about two or three days, they came up with a bulldozer yeah. and, and graded over the site. Yeah. Well, for the next two weeks, we went in at night <laughs> and our hands and knees and dug down. 
and we were able to get about 350-400 pounds of uh, electronics, of uh, uh, metal, yeah. and, uh, uh, and we found out from that that uh, uh, the Soviets were actually further ahead in their metallurgy than we had actually realized. A lot of you know, what we did and how we did it and the success we had was, was in part due to the enthusiasm of, of the guys on the ground, like me and you, right. you know, who, who went to extraordinary lengths, like you just said, crawling about in the dark at all hours in of the, the day mud. and night, yep. in the mud, you know, to, to find a mere scrap of something, That's which right. we took back. You know, I remember a friend of mine, a signals unit, left a, a, a deployment area and they burned all their crypto stuff and it was still on fire. And I always got this vision of my friend running into the site and diving into the fire, into the flames, <laughs> to, to save it. some of the bits that hadn't been burnt. You know, and, and then we subsequently found out, you know, from the intelligence agencies, that this was absolutely vital. You know, from that little scrap of, of uh, digital stuff that, or whatever right. crypto stuff. Partially burned. Yeah, they, they were know, able they, to. Yeah, so, so all that rolling about in the fire you know, definitely pay dividends. And another thing that would uh, uh, demonstrate some of the aggressiveness is that uh, uh, I had watched an airfield being built up in the north. I wasn't sure whether it was East German or Soviet. As it turned out, it was Soviet. And uh, uh, I mentioned this to one of the guys on the air team. And he said, is it being built? And I said, yes. Is, it's under construction? I said, yes. He said, has the runway been laid? And I said, yeah. He said, is it guarded? And I said, no. So on his next tour, he took a sledgehammer with him and went up and actually <laughs> broke off a piece of the runway. And uh, after the analysis was done of the concrete, we, uh, we came to learn that it was actually of such a composition that could have defeated some of our more uh, yeah. uh, 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 active uh, bombs, if yeah. you will. You know, that sort of thing wasn't taught to us. You know, right. that was like just playing on our strengths as, a, as, as ordinary we soldiers and Marines. And this was a unique yeah. Uh, 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 time in, in, in history, history, the 1947 yeah. with all the agreements between yeah. the, the, the four powers in the aftermath of World yeah. War II, and uh, uh, it turned into a reconnaissance, uh, 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 a clandestine reconnaissance yeah. outfit, and yeah. that's exactly what we did. Yeah, exactly. This work sounds dangerous. Did Dave ever get caught? Well, almost. On the 14th of February 1987, it got pretty close. Dave and his tour officer, Alan Jacobs, set up an observation post in the woods to take photographs of a new Soviet vehicle. What then happened unexpectedly was from our right, a WAS 469 Soviet uh, Jeep came hurtling up the track here and made a sharp left turn and went up behind us. Um, the reason it was doing that is because it had seen our tour vehicle in the woods and then fundamentally as it went up behind us we were then cut off. So the tour officer and I then decided that we would bury our equipment that we had, the camera and the, and the dictaphone and because there was deep snow on the ground um, we, we moved back into the woods, we buried the equipment, um, waited a few minutes expecting to be captured ourselves uh, and nothing happened. So we had heard our vehicle driving at high speed out of the area. We then made off to the emergency RV, which would have been uh, our, our standing operational procedure, our SOP. But the driver never showed up, and Dave and Alan realised they'd have to make their own way back. 57 miles from their safe house, the pair needed to make a call back to base to arrange a pickup. In the tiny village of Kulso, they found a local pub having a lock-in. Amazingly, when they knocked on the door, the landlord let the two enemy soldiers in. 
we made a phone call to the British Embassy um, and we'd always assumed that, that all lines in the GDR were monitored by the Stasi and we found that within 30 minutes of us making the call to the British Embassy in Berlin, um, our area was alive with uh, Stasi vehicles. So we went back to the village to see if Dave could find that pub. That could be it over there. Let's just have a look. Hmm. Okay, well there's only one way to find out. Go and knock on the door. It clearly doesn't look like a pub anymore, but um, we'll, uh, we'll just see. See if anybody knows Herr Urtler. Guten Tag. Uh, I'm, ich möchte befinden uh, Herr Urtler's Familie. Ja, das. Is that? Yeah, yeah. And and sie is er. Ah, so ich bin Herr Butler. Uh, mein Freund und mich. Uh, many years ago, Sie waren damals when this was a Gestatter, ja, we are common here Hello. with the military mission and uh, our yes, husband well. let us use the telephone to, uh, to make a call. Schönen Dank. Das sieht oh, aber, oh, das sieht yeah, this is, this is how it yeah. was. Yeah. Yes, yeah, when we came in. So it's still uh, like a Gestatter. Okay, so what, what she just told me is that, is that uh, they were very aware that the Stasi uh, were um, looking at, as far as I can understand from the German, and, uh, and she knew that they were in the area uh, very shortly afterwards. And, um, but she doesn't have any recollection of them actually coming in and talking to her. But that doesn't mean to say that they didn't question her husband. Me and my friend wandered in on a dark winter's night. It was snowing outside and, and they let us in. And, and saying this room at the time was full of people. Um, and they were all having what we would call in the UK a lock-in, you know. And, um, and so, you know, it was like, so we looked fairly cold and wet and hungry and the... And I guess it was that human thing. They just took pity on us. And um, whilst realising the, uh, you know, uh, what they were doing and the penalties they could pay for doing it. Dave and Alan were able to lie low until they were finally picked up at three in the morning. So Rosie, he managed to get out on that occasion. How did his career progress after that? Well, um, he remained with Brixmas until June 1989 uh, when he left Germany. And clearly that's just a few months before the Berlin Wall itself came down in November and Brixmas mission ended pretty soon after that. And in fact, as we all know, the entire Eastern Bloc began to disintegrate. How does he reflect on his time with Brixmas? I mean, we hear him talking very affectionately about it. He loved it. I mean, it's he's actually gone on. After that, he went and did some time with the CBRN unit. So he's worked a lot in um, chemical, biological um, and nuclear weaponry and protecting himself against that. And he still advises people on what to do when they go to those kind of areas. So he's done all kinds of things. But 
he says himself that Brixmas has got a special place in his heart and, and it's still um, the probably the posting that he enjoyed the most and, and he's still thinking about it. You know, when we started planning this trip, he was desperate to go. Whenever we hit a snag, he'd try and come up with a workaround and way to get us out there and, oh, what about this and what about that? And seeing him out there, you could tell how much he loved it. Thank you, Rosie. This has been a SITREP special edition about the real Cold War spies of Bricksmiths. You can hear more stories about the British forces every week on SITREP, so subscribe and never miss an episode. We were gutted, I think is the term, that the wall came down because we'd hoped we'd go back again for a third tour with Bricksmiths, but uh, the world moved on and so did we. Some journalists came to him and said, General, is it the end of the Cold War? He looked carefully at the journalist and he said, you can't imagine how much I want to believe it is. Nobody could ever imagine that we'd have a, a non-bloodshed reunification. I've never met a soul who didn't say it was the best experience they've ever had in the military. I miss it every day. I still, first thing I look at on a car is its number plate. I can't cross past a railway line without looking for trains full of armoured vehicles. It, it doesn't leave you, it's a, but it's a nice, a nice afterglow as opposed to an unpleasant one. There was no other unit in the British Army that was allowed to go into the heart of the enemy's territory and basically spy on them. Right, chaps, I think we've got enough out of this as we're going to. Let's go.